0: Good morning. morning. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that you will bring glory to your name. Lord, I pray today that you will honor your word. Lord, I pray today that you will speak to our hearts. And Lord, I humbly ask that you will use me, your servant, to share your word, your message to all here today. And Lord, that we may hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today we are going to look at Daniel chapter 3, God's children and their faith under fire. I must tell you that the basic outline for this message was put together some 40 546 years ago, when I was at Trinity College in pastoral ministries, I found it uh, about two weeks ago, I guess, I found it in putting stuff away. I'm still putting stuff away after moving, and see what you've got to look forward to, guys. See, you know? And um, I've been trying to do it since August, so you know you, but anyway, um, and I found this message, this outline. I thought, you know, God God can use this. I never had the chance to preach it outside of Trinity. So the basic outline you're going to hear today and, and experience came from that experience and pastoral ministries. Now, in Daniel, we have, it's interesting that Daniel 1 and Daniel 8 through 12 were written in Hebrew, but Daniel 2 through 7 was written in Aramaic. Hebrew is the official language of Israel. Aramaic is the language of the Gentiles. So the Hebrew was composed for Israel because it's the Hebrew is their language and Aramaic is the language of the Gentiles. So the people in Babylon, everybody could have God's word. See how God uses his word and takes it to everybody and makes it available to everyone. Now, back in chapter one, verse seven, we have these words. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names Daniel he called Belteshazzar Hananiah he called Shadrach Mishael he called Meshach and to Azariah he called Abednego Now as was the custom in that day the names given to the children had a certain meaning All of the names that had been given to these four pointed to God their Hebrew names Daniel means God is my judge Hananiah means beloved of God Mishael means who is as God, and Azariah, the Lord, is my help. But after they were taken captivity to Babylon, the Babylonians gave them new names. Belteshazzar means prince of Bel, one of their gods. Shadrach means illumined by the sun god, Rock. Meshach means who is like Venus, and Abednego, servant of the fire god, Nego. I heard the story one time of a kid that was asked, What is your favorite story in the Bible? He couldn't remember these guys' names, and he raised his hand and told the teacher, He said, My favorite story is the story about my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. So he, he couldn't remember their names, so if you can't remember their names, just think of that, okay? So we, we see these names. Of these young men are known in their country of Babylon, they're known by their pagan names, not their Hebrew names. As the prophet records their story, he uses these names in the text. Now, we don't know the exact timing of what we see here of this event, but we do know and do surmise that it was after they had been promoted to their positions of authority in the king's palace, and that occurred after Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I like what W.A. Criswell, who was a great preacher and many, 40, almost 40, well over 45 year pastor of First Baptist Dallas, Texas, said about Daniel 3. This is the making of the true Christian, the firm resolve in the heart and soul to follow God's will, whatever the cost. We are not looking for a cheap religion, and God is not looking for paper Christians. That's quite a statement to think about. So as we look and start breaking our text down today, the first item we're going to look at is the image erected. The image erected. Look at chapter one, chapter three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was sixty cubits and its breadth six cubits, and he set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now we know that this particular Action contradicts what God gave to his people, Exodus, and we know as Exodus chapter 20. Where God gave the commandment to Moses and Israel, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images to worship them. As Israel defeated enemies and took the images of their gods, they were to destroy them and not keep them even for the value that they might have in the gold and silver. But we know from reading the Word of God all the way through the Old Testament, there were many times that they didn't obey God. They took that which they were not supposed to take. And you read, in, in fact, in the book of Joshua, the first part of the book of Joshua, God said, destroy everything, don't take anything. And there were two people that took that which they were not supposed to take. And because of that, God punished those people by death. So God was very explicit, you shall have no other gods before me. Now as we think about this image erected, the first thing I want to think about real quick is the builder of the image. The builder of the image. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was a very successful general. He reigned for 40 years and was a very religious man. Now Nebuchadnezzar had encountered a dream in chapter 2 where he saw a great statue that represented all the Gentile kingdoms that eventually disintegrated. Now the image he erected was erected on the plain of Dura, which is a flat open area in in what we know today as Iraq. It's some 60 or 70 miles from where we know it today as Baghdad, Okay, out in the the plains out there in Iraq. Now this image was 90 feet tall and 9 feet tall wide he wanted to make sure everyone could see that which was they were supposed to worship to put the play, to put this in perspective american soldiers were deployed to the area in the persian gulf war it was here that god called abraham to go to ur the chaldees and went there as god led him that's the area we're talking about but next we see the builder but let's look at the benefits of the image Nebuchadnezzar used this image to unify all religions in the region under one leader. He also used it to strengthen political unity in his kingdom. Does that sound kind of familiar? Are some things happening today around? Using ungodly things and teachings to bring all people together under one leader. So that's the image erected now. In verses 2 through 7, we see the image exalted. The image exalted. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, And all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the dedication announcement. The king gathered together every leader he could think of around himself so that there would be no mistaking the decree he was about to make. This this would be equivalent to our president gathering everyone in the executive branch the judicial branch, and the legislative branch of our government together in a meeting. Now, verse 3 tells us that all of the leaders responded to the king's request. He said, you come, you gather together. They did. But verses 4 through 6 show us that the decree being delivered from the king through his entourage, which he gathered. Look at verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. The word used in Hebrew here for the decree in verse 4 is the word for law. For law. In other words, this announcement came forth through the leadership and resulted in a new law being enacted. The king appears to be very self-centered in a lot of ways. And everything in this event is about him. And everything to do that's going on is about himself, the king himself. In order to make sure he knew that, that it was a time to fall down and worship the image, the king commanded that all musical instruments would play a set song, whatever that would be. That's interesting that in the Hebrew language, it calls this a symphony of music, a symphony of music. Of music, The law also commands that when the music is heard, when you hear the music, you fall down, you worship the golden image that's been erected by the king. The terms used for fall down is only used twice in this, in chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 15. Now this is more than just a bowing. This is more than just bowing down. It's like an immediate response of prostrating yourself to the ground with no questions asked. Imagine the, the leaders of our country calling the U.S. Marine Band the, the, the Symphony Marine Symphony a place for all the special events in Washington, D.C., to come and play a certain song for all to hear. And when you hear that song, when you hear that music, you're to fall down on the ground in honor of that person or whatever it is at that time. Listen, this king was no fool. He made provision in the law that told the people of the penalty for not Obeying this command, look at verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. So the image has been erected, and the image has been exalted. But thirdly, let's look at the image eclipsed. The image eclipsed. There's three main points here. Number one: God's children are accused of non-compliance. Starting in verse 8 through verse 12, there's a certain group of tattletales. The the Bible calls them the Chaldeans. That ratted out the Jewish guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men who were spared earlier miraculously, turns around and maliciously, the Bible says maliciously, accused the Jews of their noncompliance to the law. Notice, if you notice in our passage... There's a threefold accusation. One, they showed disregard for the king's authority. King, you have all authority. You set up a law, and these guys are not obeying that law. They disregarded that. Two, they did not serve the king's gods. And three, they would not bow to the image. So these Chaldeans owed their lives to Daniel and his friends, for in chapter two of Daniel, these men were unable to interpret the king's dream. They remembered Daniel and brought Daniel to the king. Daniel interpreted the king the, the king's dream. And Daniel interceded for these men that couldn't interpret the dream. And gathered together with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and they prayed about the matter. And God answered their prayer, allowing Daniel to interpret the king's dream, thus sparing the lives of these very men, these Chaldeans, that have now turned around and are accusing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now King Nebuchadnezzar and these men were natives of Babylon. Daniel and his three friends were outsiders, but had gained high positions in the king's administration. The Chaldeans didn't devise the scheme to bring about the demise of the three Hebrew children, but they certainly took advantage of the situation. They didn't put it together, but they took advantage of it. They interrupted the ceremony in order to report to Nebuchadnezzar the refusal of the Jews to follow the law. So the children are accused of noncompliance. But in 13 to 18, verses 13 to 18, we see God's children refuse to comply with the law. No doubt, the king probably valued the services of these three men as he had been the one that appointed them to their high positions in his government. The king's reputation was at stake. He was furious that someone would dare not obey his law. He reiterated his understanding of the situation kind of like this. Let me get this straight. You do not serve my gods or worship the golden image? Are you kidding me? He offered the Jews a second chance. He, He would have the orchestra play again. If they would just bow down and the matter would be overlooked and forgotten. The words of the king at the end of verse 15 are interesting. He says, what God can deliver you out of my hands? What God can deliver you out of my hands? Just like Pharaoh, centuries earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar found out that the God of Israel is to be heard and obeyed. El Shaddai, Almighty God, is able to deliver his people. I'm reminded of what Cory Tin Boom's father told her. He said, Cory, when we take the train to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks early? No. I don't give, it to you, give you the money until we approach the ticket office. So it is with God. He provides the strength we need at the time we need it. That's how it would have been with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I believe. The three Hebrews responded confidently and powerfully. Our God that we serve is able to deliver us from you and the fiery furnace. And even if he doesn't deliver us, they said, we must not, we cannot, nor will we not, never, ever, Ever serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up you know what this answer shows me it shows me two things number one it shows me they had a great understanding and appreciation of God's great power do you really appreciate and understand how powerful God is how great God is the second thing they had a very good understanding and appreciation of man's submission to God They knew how important it is not only to to worship Almighty God, but to be submissive to this sovereign God. The king raised the issue, and they answered accordingly. This gives us a good model to follow in a lot of ways. If at any time any authority asks us to do anything that is contrary to God's word, always follow God's law, God's words, God's ways instead of man's law. We know that Paul says in Romans 13 that we are to be subject to higher powers because God is the one who placed them in authority. There's probably going to be times in upcoming days and years when Christians are going to have to make a stand and take a stand on certain things. I'm not saying to start a riot or a mutiny like has happened in, in the last year or so. I'm not talking about that. But I am saying that we as Christians must take a stand for certain things. Like for instance, we must take a stand against abortion since the killing of innocent life. God's word calls this murder. We must take a stand against any form of racism or discrimination. God's word says that all Christians are the same. No, there's no different races or creeds or whatever. Discrimination should not be tolerated, whether it's personal, governmental, or denominational. No discrimination or racism. We should stand against any law that would force any pastor or leader in a church to marry LGBTQ couples. And we should stand against any form of influence that comes in conflict with the ways of God. There's just a couple, these just a couple of examples, just a few examples. The real problem is not abortion, not racism, not discrimination. These are but symptoms of a deeper issue. The real issue is that man is sinful. And everything he does is perpetuated by that sin nature. Sin is the root. Now, those of you who like to have a garden and, and flowers and all around your house and, and, and your garden and your flower beds. If you want to kill a weed, you have two choices. You cut it off at ground level, and boy, it looks good for a while. Guess what? It grows back. The second choice you have is you pull the weed up by the roots, pull the roots out of the ground. This will guarantee that the weed or unwanted plant will not grow back again. So it is with humanity. You can try to reform them, which is man's attempt at trying to make mankind good and acceptable for society. That's what our our prison system and, and all these different systems try to do. They try to reform people. But I've got news for you, people. It does not work. It does not work. That's choice one. Choice two is we can saturate a person's heart with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then God will transform their heart, giving them a new heart, which results in new life and a new way of living based upon God's word and his grace. That, my friend, is the best way and the only way to go. 1 Peter 4 says this, Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. If you're suffering according to God's will, keep on doing that which is right and trust yourself to the God who made you for he will never fail you. God's children refused to comply with the law. But in verses 19 through 23, we see God's children being abused For their non-compliance. Listen, I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar was livid. And this showed in the redness of his face when he hears that these men do not obey his command. Because the Bible says that he was angry, very angry, and his face changed. And that's why I seem to think that he was kind of, you want to call it hot under the collar, as it were. His face turned red. And I think that would be an understatement. He was on the spot as many were looking at this situation. The orchestra was ready to play again. The political leaders were all around and ready to bow down. The masses of people stood by ready to obey if they heard the music again. A second chance to bow. Well, why not use an excuse to justify their disobedience? Why not? Excuses, excuses. Everybody else is doing it. Why not? Or we, we'll just worship it once and then ask for God's forgiveness. Or the, the king has absolute power and we must obey him. God will understand. Or I'm in a foreign land, so God will forgive us for following his customs. its customs. So, like that old phrase, when in Rome, what? Do as the Romans do? Not, no, wrong. Notice how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king in verse 18. Let it be known to you, O king, we will not bow, we will not worship. Notice their answer did not have any hint of an excuse. In times like these, excuses are the first thing that comes to our minds. Excuses may sound sensible at times, but they're very dangerous rationalizations. To worship just once violates God's command that he gave his people. The very first command, you shall not have any other gods before me. It would also erase and greatly damage the testimony for God. Listen, others were watching. I can promise you this. For those of you in here today that are believers, others are watching your life. I guarantee it. The king was so mad, so angry, so hot under the collar that he commanded that the furnace be juiced up hotter than ever before. It said seven times hotter. No matter how strong your faith is, it does not mean that you will never be subjected to a harsh ruler or an an unkind boss. Or that you'll never be unjustly punished or that you'll never suffer great loss. I got to thinking about this, and I was wondering, what would this kind of look like if if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being led away to the fiery furnace and their small group got together to pray for them? Oh, Lord, we beseech you, change Nebuchadnezzar's heart. God answers, no. The group says, well, oh, Lord, don't let your faithful servants be thrown into the fire. Please think of their families. God answers, I want them thrown into the fire. Oh, Lord, they're getting close. I command these flames to be gone in Jesus' name. And God answers, my child, it is my will and my desire that they go through the flames. I have something for them, but it is only found in the midst of the fire. Think about it. A lot of times when we pray, a big portion of our prayer life is spent telling God, what He should and should not do. God didn't take the fire away, even though He could. God always has a purpose in letting people go through the fire. Let's look at a couple of examples from the Word of God. On the screen we have Hebrews chapter 11. Others suffered mockingly and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, and killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Here we see the suffering of the faithful. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is the hall of faith. It's listed many of God's servants who were faithful to Him. Many suffered because of that faithfulness. Then we have John 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. As God's people, we go through tribulation in the world. Jesus gives us peace in these times. Jesus gives us peace. Not peace as the world gives. But he said, my peace I give to you. And in Acts 14 tells us of Paul, where he's preaching and ministering, was stoned and left for dead. He rose up and went on his way, continuing to preach the gospel. Verse 22 says this. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. As we live our lives in a godly fashion, affliction comes from different places. Number one, it comes from the world. God's word says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. This is the furnace that man prepares. It also comes from Satan. Well, the Bible says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the furnace that Satan provides. But hang on to it. God himself sometimes allows us to go through trials and testing. Why? It fits us for service. It purifies us. It separates us. In our text in verses 28 to 30, the fiery trial that the three Hebrews went through was used by God to bless all the people. And in fact, the king himself blessed God. King Nebuchadnezzar decreed this, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. This is the furnace that God prepares. One of the many verses to the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation, is this. When through, through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The three young men committed a holy act of defiance against an ungodly law. And as a set-apart believer in God, we will live according to God's standards first and will not bow to any ungodly or unbiblical code. God's children are abused for their noncompliance. But next we see God's children thrown into the fire. Our text says that Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. We looked into the flames and saw not three I can see Nebuchadnezzar looking at his guys. Didn't we throw three in there? One, two, three. But I see a fourth one walking with them in the midst of the fire. I see the fourth one. The Septuagint said that Nebuchadnezzar's attention was caught when he heard the men singing praises in the furnace. I find that very interesting. Because in the New Testament, we're told that Paul and Silas were in prison. And what's the Bible say they were doing? They were worshiping God, singing praises to their great God. And what did God do? He delivered them. The three Hebrews wouldn't bow, and guess what? They're not going to burn. But listen to what Isaiah said. In Isaiah 43, God said to his people, he said, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I found an interesting quote from an English martyr who was burned at the stake. He said this, and this is his English. O ye papists, behold, you look for miracles. Here now you may see a miracle. For in this fire, I feel no more pain than as if I was in a bed of down. But it is to me as a bed of roses, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Next we see God's children are delivered from the furnace. Look at verse 26 of our text. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies for those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. As Nebuchadnezzar viewed the scene in the fiery furnace, he called out to them not only by name, but with these words, servants of the Most High God. No doubt this was motivated by seeing the fourth man in the fire. Whenever someone has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, when you have a personal encounter with God Himself, you will never, ever, ever be the same again. These people witnessed the full extent of a miracle of God. And He performed In their very sight. Before their very eyes. The Hebrews had no ill effects of the fire. Because it says in our text. They saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of them. Their hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not burned. And no smell of fire had come upon them. I don't know about you. But have you ever smelt certain things when they burn? How nasty it smells. It's bad. It's bad. But in verses 28 to 30, as you concentrate on this picture up here of them being delivered, King Nebuchadnezzar makes a new proclamation. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar's new proclamation, he he was greatly affected of what he had witnessed with their three Hebrew children and that fourth person walking with them in the fire. He gave glory to the one true God because he recognized that that God, the one true God, was not the God that he served. Nebuchadnezzar was saying, God is the God of the Hebrews because he said he's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is the God who sends a Savior. He said he sent his angel to deliver them. God is the God of great power. He delivered his servants. God is the God worthy of trust. His servants put their trust in him. God is the God worthy of full of surrender. He changed the king's command and yielded their bodies. And God is the God who demands exclusive allegiance. He said they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. This king not only blessed God, but makes a new proclamation that nothing evil should be said against God, the God of the Hebrews. The king witnessed God working in the life of these Hebrew people. This was an extremely effective testimony to the king. Paul made a similar proclamation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you are our epistle written in our hearts Known and read by all men, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on the tables of flesh, that is, the heart. How can we take Daniel chapter 3 and kind of apply it to our lives? Application number one, let me say this, it all comes down to your faith. It all comes down to your faith. Number one, pressured about a to politi- correct, political correctness instead of depending on your faith in God. Listen, if political correctness at face value means that we are to treat people at different backgrounds, et cetera, with respect and not stereotype them based on their race, gender, et cetera, then it's probably not a bad thing. But in the day that Daniel wrote about the three Hebrew children, the great statue and the bowing to it, was the object of political correctness in that day. God explicitly teaches that no one is to bow, worship, or create images that can become idols. We have idols of that same type today in our society. Government expects everyone to bow to the, like the, uh, I guess you'd call it the LGBTQ lifestyles. They want you to bow to abortion. It's gotta be done regardless. Regardless, it don't, don't matter that God says it's murder. It doesn't matter that science itself teaches us that conception begins. Uh, life begins at conception. The other thing, one of the idols going around today and the sad thing about it, and I'm not going to say much about it, but the sad thing about it is it's going into a lot of our churches, and it's called, it's called being woke. Let me tell you what God's Word says about that, something like that. Remind them of these things and charge them from God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene anything that we preach or teach that does not belong in the that's not a part of the word of god if you preach any other gospel other than that which i gave you paul said let him be accursed this church as long as i'm here as long as brother joe and tim and all the uh, other leaders are here we will never bow we will never bend and we will always preach the gospel of the word of god All of these are anti-biblical at their core and therefore should not be bowed to by anyone claiming the name of Christ. Number two, what's the proper answer to being correct? Speak the truth fearlessly. Speak the truth fearlessly and as best as you can, always with grace and humility. Remember, even your staunchest of enemies may be right sometimes. Your best, but let me say this, your best and closest Christian friend can sometimes be terribly wrong. Look for truth at all time, all the time, even in the most unlikely places and from the most unlikely people. Number three, prove your faith by your life. Prove your faith by your life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in positions of authority in the king's service. They were placed there by the sovereign God that they served. Because they lived an intentional faith, those that hated them and what they stood for stepped forward and accused them of not obeying the law. When we stand up for that which is right, you will always be opposed by the devil and his crowd. Always. Even the king was angry, but they did not relent and believed that God would deliver them one way or another. Either they would be brought out of the fire or God would take them to be with him in paradise. They were willing to die for their faith. The question has been asked many times of Christians, are you willing to die for your faith? I'd rather ask a different question. Are you willing to really live for your faith? Are you really really willing to live for your faith? In the last application, we see the power of, of prevailing faith faith under fire means that we are true to God no matter how difficult the pressure the threats or the punishment because mine and your destiny is in God's hands we can put our complete trust and total dependence in our sovereign God I close with a quote from a pastor of a like-minded church, said this, for Christians, our response to suffering is not primarily expressed with marching feet, but with bended knees. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you use your word. May we become followers of you like Daniel like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Willing to go to the nth degree to follow you and your ways. Lord, we ask that you bring glory to yourself through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.